0: Good morning, everybody. Thanks for being here. It's great to see you. I'm glad you're here. I hope you stay to the end. I want to welcome everyone who joins us online each week as well. We want to welcome you to our service, and I want to give an extra special greeting to anybody who might be a first-time guest with us. We always love having guests in our services. If you got a Bible with you, let me hear your pages turning to the book of Romans in the 11th chapter as we're going to continue this message series we've been involved in now for several weeks called Unashamed. What we're doing is we're looking at the book of Romans chapter by chapter, not verse by verse, but chapter by chapter. And as we come to Romans chapter 11, we're going to do things a little bit different today. And honestly, the truth is um, I'm going I'm to present this as a little bit more of a Bible study than a typical sermon. And I'm not going to ask you if that's okay with you because I don't care if that's okay with you. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. I decided that's what I'm going to do, and that's what I'm going to do. Here's the deal about the book of Romans. The book of Romans is filled with what we call Christian doctrine. And on the most practical level, the word doctrine really is a word that means what we believe. And so doctrine is a set of beliefs. And so in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul gives us Christian doctrine or Christian beliefs that all revolve around this one single word and that one word is righteousness. Christian doctrine or beliefs that revolve around the word righteousness and that brings up a question that we need to cover this morning and the question is what is righteousness because that's one of those church words that we can throw around without ever pausing to think that somebody might not really understand what that means and so let's talk about that for just a minute. If you were to try to define righteousness by just looking in a dictionary, it would say something like this, the quality of being morally upright or justifiable. But what is righteousness when we use it in this setting? What is righteousness from a biblical perspective? Well, here's how I would try to answer that question. I would begin with the recognition that righteousness is a fundamental characteristic of God. And I say that because there are literally dozens upon dozens of verses in the Bible that teach this truth about God, that righteousness is a fundamental character or characteristic of God. I'm. I'm going to just limit myself to four verses to talk about this real quickly, and all of them from the Book of Psalms to keep it simple. I love the way this first Psalm 11 starts because it was it's such a definite statement for the Lord is say it with me righteous. He loves justice. Upright men will seek or see His face rather. And then you go to Psalm 97:2, and the psalmist says, clouds and thick darkness around him, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. We see this reality of righteousness in God. Psalm 111, three, glorious and majestic are his deeds and his righteousness endures forever. And then finally Psalm 145, 17, the Lord is righteous. Again, a definitive statement in all his ways and loving toward all he has made. And so again, righteousness is a fundamental characteristic of God and so based on these verses, And that truth, uh, the simplest definition of righteousness, and you might want to write this down somewhere, somewhere in your Bible so you don't forget it, is righteousness is this, one who is right. It's just that simple. Righteousness means one who is right. And that's certainly a great description for God, a great definition of God. We just read Psalm 145 and verse 17 that says, the Lord is righteous. Or in other words, the Lord is right." In all His ways, God is righteous because He is one who is right. Now, when you move forward with that fundamental truth about God, and you talk about righteousness now with regard to men, or in other words, righteousness—what does righteousness righteousness mean with regard to you and to me? Then the only conclusion you can come to is this: righteousness for you and me means right with God, right with the One who is always. Right. Now, getting back to the book of Romans, which is a letter, again, written by the Apostle Paul, filled with Christian doctrine or Christian beliefs that revolve around the word righteousness. We see that reality really clearly if we outline the book of Romans. And so, what we see in the book of Romans is first of all, Our need for righteousness, you and me. Our need for righteousness, that's in the first three chapters. And a good verse to describe that from the first three chapters would be Romans 3.23, which says, for all, everyone say all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That gives us a need for righteousness, a need to be right with God, because on our own we're not. And so the second thing you see in Romans is God's provision for our righteousness, or how we can become righteous. You see that in Romans chapter three. Uh, through Romans chapter eight. And a good example would be Romans 6, 23, where it says, for the wages of sin is death, but, everyone say, but, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. How do you become right with God? Through faith in Christ. It's through Christ. He's our provision for righteousness. And then you see how we practice righteousness in Romans chapter 12 through 15. And... Um, In other words, how we live out this rightness that we have in Christ, Romans 12 and verse 1 says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And so there it is. But did you notice that there's something missing? Chapters 9 through 11, because here's the thing about chapters 9 through 11 in the book of Romans. They are parenthetical. And what that means is, is you can just put parentheses around chapters nine through 11, and understand that they don't necessarily fit in with the rest of the theme of the book, okay? And the reason why they don't necessarily fit in, I mean, they do, but they don't fit in with the rest of the theme of the book, is because they deal, those chapters deal specifically with God's relationship with the nation of Israel, or with the Jewish people. Romans chapter 9, I'll put uh, just a brief one-word description of each chapter. Romans 9 deals primarily with Israel's past as God's chosen and privileged people. Romans 10 deals primarily with Israel's present as a nation which has refused to submit to the gospel. And where we are now in Romans 11 deals primarily with Israel's future as a nation which will one day be saved. Now, I preached from Romans chapter 9, and I cheated. I took the coward's way out. I didn't really try to to develop this truth. I—if you, If you remember, that was the first message I shared after the announcement of my upcoming retirement. And so I just gave you three application points from Romans 9 and I preached a message that was on my heart about the church. Romans chapter 10, my son Andrew preached this message. He preached a great message from this, trying to make this applicable to our lives. And here we are in Romans chapter 11 with this chapter that deals primarily with Israel's future as a nation, which will one day be saved, and I realize, listen to me close, I realize that not everyone who comes to church this weekend is going to have the same level of Bible knowledge and understanding, and while it might sound odd, that's really not either good or bad. That's just the reality of where you are in your spiritual journey, and I'm so glad you're here, whether you are, are way down the road in your spiritual journey or this is all really brand new to you. I'm so glad you're here. Well, what that means is this detail about God's relationship with the nation of Israel makes total sense to many of you who have spent a lot of time in church and a lot of time studying the Bible, but it can seem very confusing to others, and I get that. And so, let me just try to explain the difficulty of Romans, these parenthetical chapters in the book of Romans, Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, by highlighting four things, four things, four biblical truths. Number one, the Bible teaches that the Israelites, this is the Jewish people, are God's chosen people. We know that. You can go back to Genesis chapter 12 and see how God called on a man who was named Abram at the time and said, I want you to be the father of a new nation. And then we see the growth of this nation of Israel from there. So the Bible teaches that the Israelites, the Jews, are God's chosen people, uh, uh, Because God needed a nation, a group of people to send the Messiah into the world through. And so that became the nation of Israel. Uh, That's the first thing we see. The second thing is that God promised this chosen people that one day they would enjoy a glorious kingdom uh, under the rule of their Messiah. That's the second thing. The third thing the Israels rejected Jesus as their Messiah when he came to earth. And here's the fourth thing. When the church first began, it was made up of entirely of Jewish believers. We see that in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when the church first began. Peter preached the first gospel sermon. About 3,000 people were baptized that day. They were Jewish believers, Jewish converts. But over time, that's changed. As the years went by, more and more Gentiles, non-Jews entered the church and less and less Jews. So today, the church is made up predominantly of Gentile believers. And we thank God for the Jews who have believed in Jesus as their Messiah and so Savior, but their number is few. Those are four truths that we find in the scriptures about this whole thing. And when you think about it, truths number one and two really are contradicted by truths number three and four. So the question, the question is, what is God's relationship with the nation of israel today what is god's relationship with the jews today what what has happened to all the promises god has given to the jews is god finished with the nation of israel does the nation of israel have any future in god's plan for the world these are these are critical questions that are all addressed in romans in some way in some form in romans chapters 9 10 and 11 but here's the deal those questions result in different conclusions among believers, sincere believers who interpret different parts of the Bible in different ways. And uh, we don't have the time in a single message to try to completely understand all of those answers. Are they important? The questions? They absolutely are. Do I have my own belief about the answers? I do. I believe God's going to keep all of his promises to the Jews. That's what I believe. But what we are doing in this study of the book of Romans is we're going chapter by chapter for the purpose of trying to highlight major truths or specific truths or practical truths or applicable truths from each chapter. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at Romans chapter 11 and Paul's words related to God's relationship to Israel and we're gonna learn three powerful truths about God that apply to all of our lives today. And if I were to try to summarize that all of the truths together, I guess I would say it like this. When I read Romans chapter 11, here's the thing that I'm reminded about God that applies to you and to me and everyone. God is ready when you are. And what I mean by that When it comes to having a right relationship with God, being right, when it comes to righteousness, God is ready when you are because God is patient with all people. He is patient with you. He's patient with me. He's patient with all the Jews. He's patient with all the Gentiles. He's patient with everyone. And this is a a significant truth we're going to highlight from Romans chapter 11. So having said all of that, in this Bible study... If you're able to, go ahead and stand with me. We're gonna read some scripture together. I got my Bible open to Romans chapter 11, and I'm gonna really do something unusual. I'm gonna skip all the way down and read verses 33 through 36. So listen to me. Verses 33 through 36, the end of the chapter, are are words that read like a doxology. You remember growing up singing the doxology in church? You know, this, this time when you just sing this song of praise to God? And this doxology that we see here at the end of Romans chapter 11 really kind of tells us one thing. You know, there is only one God, and because he's an all-powerful God, he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, and you and I are never going to be able to fully understand the ways of God. Never. No matter how hard we try. We're reminded of that in these words, beginning in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of his wisdom and Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Say it with me, amen. All right, you can be seated. We always ask that God would bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Three truths from Romans 11 about God that we see in his relationship with the nation of Israel that can apply to all of our lives today. And here's the first one. If you like to take notes, write it down somewhere. You can't stumble beyond recovery. You can't stumble beyond recovery. And I'm using, I'm using the words of Paul literally in Romans chapter 11 to make this point. In fact, I'm going to put Romans chapter 11 and verse 11 on the screen Paul's talking about Israel's rejection of Jesus as Messiah because that's what happened when Jesus came. The vast majority of the Jews rejected him as Messiah because he wasn't the Messiah that they were looking for. And so Paul writes in Romans eleven eleven 11, again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? And then Paul answers his own question. He says, not at all. So even though Israel, again, for the most part rejected Jesus as the Messiah, one of the truths Paul makes clear in Romans 11 is that their rejection is not permanent and that God does not consider this failure to be final. And so here's the powerful truth we need to embrace. You can't stumble beyond recovery because when you are ready to give up your unbelief, when you are ready to turn around and go in the direction God wants you to go in your life, then God will be ready to receive you. Now, I know what comes up in the mind of so many of you at the, when I say something like that is they say, well, pastor, what about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Because the Bible says, Jesus said that all sins are forgivable except the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And while we don't have time to talk about this, if you really study that passage, I'm going to tell you this in a real concise way. If you really study that passage uh, to find the meaning, then basically what Jesus is saying is that you, you, you can't if you come to a point in your life where you totally, completely reject Jesus altogether, there's nothing he can do. It's the rejection of Jesus. It's not clear when you hear the way it's described, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, but really what Jesus is talking about is the complete rejection of him as Savior and Lord. But beyond that, you can't stumble beyond recovery. And here's why it's so important for all of us to understand this truth about God, because the world is filled with people who are convinced that God has given up on them. In fact... There might be somebody sitting here in this audience or listening to me online right now who thinks that in some way, some fashion or form, God has given up on them. Maybe not given up on them in terms of the opportunity to be saved, but given up on them in terms of being able to be used by God or to serve in any meaningful way. But here's the truth. While the world believes, many people in the world believe that God has given up on them, that is not the case. And the Bible bears this out to us in so many ways. In fact, God's relationship with the nation of Israel bears this out to us in many, many ways. I grew up going to Sunday school my whole life as a child. How many of you have the same experience? I just, I just did, and I learned so much about the Bible when I was just a little boy growing up in Sunday school. I learned all the familiar stories of the Bible, and I, I learned how the Bible fit together, and all those kinds of things. When I went to Bible college, it was required that freshman students had to take a Bible knowledge test because they wanted to assess what your Bible knowledge was. And because of my background, I actually did pretty good on that test. But when I got in my, my, my first semester freshman classes, then it, I really quickly learned how much about the Bible I didn't know, especially in my Old Testament history class and in my class uh, on the book of Acts. But I can remember going to my Old Testament history class, and I was shocked about how much I didn't know about the Bible, at least the Old Testament. And one of the things that I remember learning that has always stayed with me is that the nation of Israel, God's people, got to a point where they fell in to this horrible cycle that they repeated over and over and over again that really dramatically impacted their relationship with God. And you can describe the cycle with these four words. First of all, they would sin. They would rebel against God. They would disobey God, even though God said, listen, this is what I've done for you. This is what I'll do for you. I'm going to be your God. You be my people. You obey me. I'll bless you. It's really very simple. But in spite of that, they fell into sin over and over and over again. And then as a result of sin, they started to suffer. Suffering came as a result of their sin because oftentimes pagan nations would overthrow them. Pagan nations would dominate them. Pagan nations would persecute them. And the suffering would get so bad that in sorrow, they would cry out to God for help. And because God is a gracious, loving, kind God, every time they did, he provided them with salvation. And you'd think going through that just once would be enough, right? But they repeated this cycle over and over and over again. Sin, which led to suffering, which resulted in sorrow, which led to God's salvation. One good example, if you're curious to learn a little bit more about that, is just go home and read through the book of Judges, because the book of Judges demonstrates that cycle perfectly over and over and over again. God was always patient. They never learned their lesson, they repeated the cycle and yet God in his patience continued to provide salvation. So we see in the Old Testament story, stories of how God interacted with the Israelites, what Paul is proclaiming in the book of Romans, and that is that you can't stumble beyond recovery. Israel can't and neither can you. There's probably no greater story in the Old Testament, that illustrates God's love and patience than the story of Hosea, who is a prophet. And his story is, as odd as it sounds, a love story. You may or may not be familiar with the book of Hosea, but basically, and I'll just give you a, a paraphrased version Hosea marries a woman named Gomer. Don't you think that looked good on the wedding announcement? put Gomer in gold lettering, you know, and dress it up a little bit. It was probably very attractive. He married this woman named Gomer. God warned him in advance that she was going to be unfaithful. So after they had three children, they brought three children into their marriage, Gomer left Hosea to pursue a a life of lust. And she turned her back on him, even though he was a kind and a loving and a faithful husband, To her, And she turned her back on him and she became a prostitute. Now, some of the details of Hosea's story are a little bit sketchy, but it appears that at one point, while Gomer was off living this life of lust, this life of prostitution, she sold herself or somehow got sold into slavery. And after some time, God speaks to Hosea, and this is what he says to him in Hosea chapter 3 and verse 1. Go show your love to your wife again though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the, ra- the sacred raisin cakes. Now, I don't know what the deal was with raisin cakes other than, than um, um, I think in ancient days, they were viewed as some kind of aphrodisiac and they were eaten during idolatrous ceremonies because oftentimes in pagan days, idolatrous ceremonies would involve sexual uh, immorality and on and on and on. And so Hosea does what God tells him to do. He goes and he looks for Gomer and he finds her on, literally on the auction block. And he ends up, his, he ends up buying his wife, literally paying money to buy his wife out of slavery. And, uh, he ends up buying her for 15 shekels of silver and about 10 bushels of barley. Not much of a cost for a human life. And while it would appear to any reasonable, sensible person that any good in Gomer's life was finished and over, that she was useless as a woman, she was useless as a wife, she was useless as a mother. Here's what Hosea says to her in Hosea 3.3. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will live with you. Now, folks, let me tell you something. I know for a fact from counseling married couples where unfaithfulness and infidelity has taken place. I know for a fact, for sitting in the room on the couch with the two of them, sometimes when the infidelity is confessed, how difficult it is to come back from that. And if that's the case today, how... Imagine how difficult it must have been in the patriarchal society of 8th century B.C. Israel. And what Hosea does in buying his wife, who is a prostitute, out of slavery and telling her, I'm going to live with you, or in essence saying, I'm going to be faithful with you, what he does is unthinkable. And so, God tells this story, God gives us this story because he wants us to understand this truth, you can't stumble beyond recovery. This story of Hosea and Gomer, which is a heartbreaking love story, if you can even call it a love story, really serves to illustrate another love story, and that's the story of God's love for the nation of Israel. Israel. Because God continued to love Israel even when their sin and rebellion broke his heart over and over and over again. And that teaches us this truth about God that we cannot just take for granted. He never stops loving. He never stops wanting to forgive. He never stops wanting to save. He never stops wanting to receive you into his kingdom. And you might be listening to me right now and you literally think you have gone too far and you have done too much. If anybody really knew what you were really like behind the scenes, they'd understand. But God, I'm telling you, God wants you to know that his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness is available to you right now today, regardless of any of that. Now, here's the second truth that we're going to learn in this Bible study we're all involved in, this big old Bible study we're all involved in this morning. Faith in God is your only hope for a meaningful life. Faith in God is your only hope for a meaningful life. And here's why I say that. In Romans chapter 11, if you read through the chapter, Paul uses the illustration of an olive tree pretty predominantly at one point in the chapter and talks about how branches can be grafted into a healthy olive tree and end up producing fruit. And if you're familiar with your Old Testament, then you probably know that there are different times in the Old Testament when the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, are pictured as a flourishing, oftentimes, olive tree. One example would be Jeremiah chapter 11 and verse 16 that says, the Lord called you a thriving olive tree with fruit beautiful in form. That's a reference to the nation of Israel. Psalm 52, eight, but I am like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. That's a reference to the nation of Israel. But as Paul talks about this olive tree in Romans chapter 11, as he refers to Israel as an olive tree, he says at one point that some of the branches have been broken off. Some of the branches of this flourishing olive tree have been broken off, and once they've been broken off, they make room for additional branches, wild branches, to be grafted onto the olive tree so they can become a part of the original tree. Now, the broken branches are unbelieving Israel, who rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and had their own plan for what God was gonna do and wouldn't change from that plan. The broken branches are unbelieving Israel and the wild branches that are grafted onto the olive tree are believing Gentiles. And again, Gentiles are just non-Jews. So Paul talks about this grafting of branches onto this olive tree to make a point. And the point is, the only way anybody has spiritual life is because they are a part of the living tree of God's salvation, the salvation that God offers. So you can't have salvation through your own effort or by your own work. You can't have a meaningful spiritual life in any other way other than being grafted into God's tree of life, which is to say to be grafted into the saving life of Jesus. That's why he writes in Romans 11, 17, and 18, these words. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, remember he's writing this in the New Testament book of Romans now, If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, the root supports you. And the meaning of that is not as complicated as it might sound the meaning is that spiritual life is not the result of you and your effort. Meaning, the meaning of that is, is that spiritual life is not the result of your good works. It's the result of the mercy of God because you didn't create spiritual life for yourself. God created it by sending his son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. And so any spiritual life that you have or I have, is the result of what God has done for us, not the result of anything that we could do on our own. It's the result of God's grace. That's why Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, chapter two, verses eight and nine, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And so Paul uses the olive tree to illustrate the story of God's salvation. The the branches who remain connected to the root of the tree experience life. Those who reject God's grace, who choose not to believe in his son, cut themselves away from the root. They are branches that have become broken off. And so it gives the opportunity for new branches to be grafted into the tree, into the root of Jesus, and they can experience the life that God offers. That means your only hope for a meaningful life is in Jesus, that's it. And so the Jews who rejected Jesus thought that they could find or continue to have some kind of a meaningful spiritual life through their own effort as they followed the law, which is not unlike people today who think that they can have a meaningful life just by being good, by being moral, by being upright, by being better than anybody else or at least better than most other people. I know I'm not perfect, but I'm way better than, well, I'm way better than most of you. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I am just kidding on that. But the point is this, the only way to have a meaningful life, listen, no matter how good you are, because I have talked to so many people who, are genuinely good people, but they choose not to surrender their lives in faith and trust to Christ. No matter how good you are, you can't have a genuinely meaningful life if you're not connected to Jesus. It might seem like you do, things might go well for a while, but there will come a time when your life will be exposed for what it is, and here's what it is. It is empty. It is empty. And it will always be that way until you're connected to the life of Jesus. It will always be that way. Because what the world has to offer you will only bring you peace and pleasure for a time. Because the world doesn't have the answers that all of us seek and that all of us need. Here's the third thing. God's not going to change his mind about you. You know, God revealed himself, so much of himself, to the nation of Israel through his relationship with them. He, he, he showed us who he was in the way he loved them, in the way he forgave them, in, in the way he gave them chance after chance after chance. And so when you look at God, and the nation of Israel, you see the patience of God. You see the the grace of God. You see the mercy of God. You see the love of God. You see the purposes of his God and of God. And here's the thing, friends, God hasn't changed. God hasn't changed. I don't think he's changed his mind about the people of Israel. That's such a longer and deeper study uh, that that it, that takes us even into end times events and how end time events will unfold. But I believe they will always be his chosen people. But here's the problem. In the Old Testament, where we see so much of the relationship or the reality of God revealed in his relationship with Israel. In the Old Testament, we don't have this full picture of God's plan of salvation. We have, we have pro- prophetic glimpses of the coming of the Messiah. We have prophetic glimpses, and pictures, and instructions, and truths about Jesus, who is our savior, but God's complete plan of salvation can't fully be understood until you understand the death, and the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, where he paid the penalty for our sin, and then he overcame death, and then he blazed a path for us to God through him. Now, I'm going to tell you that I don't believe that God has given up on the nation of Israel. I believe that there is still a future for the nation of Israel. And I'm going to also tell you that I don't believe, no matter who you are or what you've done, that God has given up on you. In any way, God has not given up on you You may have rejected him in your life, but he hasn't rejected you. You may have resisted his plan for your life, but he still has a plan for your life. You may have refused to listen to his voice, but God, even to this very moment, friends, whether you're here in person or online, he is still calling your name. He hasn't changed his mind about you, no matter what your past looks like. One of the things the Bible shows us over and over again is how God has the ability to take people who make bad choices, even really, really bad choices, and give them a second chance. I think about Moses in the Old Testament. From the time Moses was born, he was very special because if you go back to the book of Exodus, you see that when Moses was born, his parents recognized that he was no ordinary child. Now, Moses was born, if you remember your Old Testament history, at a time when there was an edict issued by Pharaoh for all newborn male Israelite or Hebrew Babies to be killed, and yet they hid him because they saw he was no ordinary child. And they hid him in their home as long as they could, and then you know the story they took, they made a basket of reeds, and they, which it just doesn't sound very safe to us, and they put him in the Nile River <laughs> where Pharaoh's daughter found him, and took him home, and raised him as. A prince of Egypt, and God had this plan and this calling on Moses's life from the beginning. And yet, one day Moses messed up. He 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 knew that he was not a, an Egyptian. He knew he was an Israelite. He saw an Egyptian soldier being cruel to uh, Israelites, to Jews, and he murdered the soldier. And then he ran away in fear and hid in the desert for forty years. But you can't run far enough to hide from God when God has a plan for your life. And God showed up one day in a burning bush, and he. Renewed Moses and called him to be the deliverer of his people, sent him back to Egypt. And he, he went back to Egypt and he led the people of God out of Egyptian bondage. And he led them to the promised land. Now they were... They didn't enter in because of a lack of belief, and and so they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and they got to the promised land again. And because Moses wasn't perfect, he he messed up along the way and he wasn't allowed to, to take them into the promised land and he ended up dying. But this is what the this is what's said about, this is what's said in the Bible about Moses after his death in Deuteronomy chapter 34 and verse 10. Since then, since Moses, no prophet, no one has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. God's not going to give up on you. You look in the New Testament and you see Peter. Peter, who was an apostle. Peter, who was the... uh, understood in many ways leader of uh, the original 12 disciples. And one day in Caesarea, Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're uh, Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. And then he asked Peter specifically, who do you say that I am? You remember what he said? He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He spoke this prophetic confession. You are the Christ You're no ordinary man. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And so he went from this mountaintop moment to a few weeks later a moment that none of us could have ever even imagined for peter because he failed jesus in the worst possible way in the moment when jesus needed his needed peter the most when 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 in the moment when jesus was desperate for peter or someone peter didn't just fail jesus he denied that he even knew jesus but god's plan for peter didn't change and after the resurrection Jesus specifically restores Peter and he goes on to be this vibrant leader in the early church, preaching sermons where thousands of people came to Christ and being filled with supernatural power from God and healing others in supernatural ways and you can go on and on and on and I'm just gonna tell you, God's not gonna change his mind about you. Or maybe some of you need to hear me say it like this, God hasn't changed his mind about you even though you've got some Perhaps some significant failure on your resume. Or you've been missing when it comes to a life of faith. He's ready when you are. There's just so much we learn about God through the story of his relationship with Israel. We learn about his mercy and his forgiveness and his patience. And just like God has been patient with them, God is going to be patient with you. Even if you've made a mess out of your life, he is ready to give you another chance. Or he is ready to welcome you into his family, into the life-giving root of his son, Jesus, who can change your life today, tomorrow, and for all eternity.